Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture roundup. I'm Alex Andreu. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich, joining you for the first time on The Culture Bunker, so no biting. <laughs> this week, we welcome the journalist, broadcaster and crisp aficionado, Sophie Harris, to the studio. <laughs> and we are also delighted to be joined by Emmy, Brit and BAFTA award-winning composer, Howard Goodall. We talked to Howard about his new remembrance cantata, Unconditional Love, a career of composing pretty much every memorable British comedy theme tune ever, Brexit's effect on musicians and much more. And we explore the many folds in Jana Hogg's The Souvenir, part two, a movie about a movie within a movie about a movie. Plus, Dutch Cassidy, it's the Sunflowers Kid. We head into the Courtauld to chat to the curators of their latest exhibition, Van Gogh's Self-Portraits. And we take a minimalist magic ride with Kate LeBon's latest album, Pompeii. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Hello and welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Howard Goodall is a BAFTA, Brit and Emmy-winning composer, musicologist and broadcaster. No Oscar though, so how good can he really be? Hello Howard, thanks for joining us. Hi Alex. Um, I, I don't know why I've not got an Oscar, but I'm quite happy uh, with the ones I've got. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're going for it. <laughs> I don't think I do enough Hollywood movies, I don't think, to qualify. You know, you've got to be doing about five a year. Oh, right. That's the, that's the quota, is it? Um, <laughs> you have, I'm sure, been keeping up with the struggle of artists against streaming giants. How is this different to when the industry was controlled by a small number of consolidated giant recording companies? Why is it more of a problem now? Well, I don't know if it's more of a problem. It's a different problem. At least when the giant uh, record companies were controlling all music in the 60s and 70s and 80s, people were paying for the music. Uh, you've got a situation now where music is more or less free. And um, what money there is to be made from it is being made by these giant corporations. Of course, uh, streaming should be a fantastically good thing for music. It democratizes the whole process. It means anybody mm. can upload their music. It doesn't mean that there have to be a few gatekeepers that decide, you know, whose music gets heard and invested in. So in, in, on one, in, on one side, streaming is really good for music. Uh, the problem is that quite quickly after the great streaming revolution started, just a few companies started to monopolize this, create a cartel and have fixed what you pay and how you pay and how they decide to pay the artists who are on their platform. And that's not a good thing. It's sort of developed upside down, sort of immediately gone from lots of people joining in this wonderful party of music to just a very few people deciding who's going to be at the party and who's going to get treats as a result. Um, because what has happened is, what's so different from the 1970s, say, is that um, you know, the vast majority of people who are uploading music and putting their stuff on the big streaming platforms are really making almost no money at all. And mm. a very few number of people uh, at the very top of their game are making a rather a lot. And that can't be an, an equitable situation, which I, I suspect by nudging and pushing and campaigns like Broken Record and musicians making a fuss all over the world now, uh, that this will hopefully gradually change because, you know, music being free to the public 
is not something that any other industry would put up with. Can you imagine mm. movies being made in a situation where no one ever paid for a movie, that movies were free? Um, it, it would, in the end, destroy that industry. So we've got to be a bit careful about um, you know, how, how it develops over the next few years. Much more from Howard in a bit. Sophie Harris writes and broadcasts for the likes of The Guardian, Mojo and Rolling Stone and is a regular on BBC Radio 2 and Front Row. She also edits The Guardian Manchester Festival Guide and bios for new releases on everything from Sven's debut album to Thomas Bartlett's beautiful recording of Bach's French Suites. Hello, Sophie. Hello, hello. Now, we'll come on to talk about your biographies a little bit later, but you've recently edited the annual mag for the Marbella Club Hotel, once frequented by the likes of Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. Have you unearthed any White Lotus-esque escapades? <laughs> Certainly none that I could talk about, I think, live on a podcast. But it was it was a very strange situation, actually, when we started it, which was in March 2020, right at the very beginning. So there I was thinking, oh, lovely, you know, go and do some work and have a bit of a nice break. And actually, it was a very, very, very strange time to be going. And I think the lockdown kicked in uh, a couple of days after I got back. So it was all a bit, a bit of a strange and anxious time. Um, but absolutely beautiful place. And I think with any of these super luxe hotels, there's always that touch of the of the White Lotus and everyone trying so hard to be courteous and quiet and gentle and, uh, you know, all these things that are very nice, but also slightly mannered, I suppose. But yeah, it was fun. Now, before we crack on, a tiny reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more every single day. Plus all sorts of amazing merchandise, deeply trendy mugs and t-shirts. All you have to do is search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, I have admired Howard Goodall's work, especially his choral compositions, for a very long time. And I was aware, of course, that he was responsible for much television work. But it was only when I started researching him in earnest for The Culture Bunker that I fully understood the extraordinary body of work he lays claim to. A hugely abridged list of his theme work alone would be a dream for most composers. Blackadder, Red Dwarf, Mr. Bean, QI, The Catherine Tate Show, The Vicar of Dibley, 2.4 Children, The Thin Blue Line. I could go on for a long time. Add to that film scores like the HBO Churchill biopic Into the Storm, for which he won an Emmy, classical compositions like his Requiem Eternal Light, for which he won a Brit Award, and his seminal presenting of music programs, including Big Bangs, for which he won a BAFTA. I'll stop now because I'm supposed to ask him some questions rather than just list his bloody awards. Howard, let me start from the present day and go backwards because on the 13th of February, you have the European premiere of your Remembrance Cantata, Unconditional Love. Tell us about the piece. Yes, during lockdown, I guess a little bit over a year ago, I was uh, contacted by a choir in Houston, Texas, uh, who have performed much of my work in the past, St. Luke's uh, United Methodist Church. And they've got a fantastic music faculty there and lots of music and, and arts go on there. And they said to me, uh, the chap who runs it, Sid Davis, said to me, you know, is there anything about this pandemic we're all living through that you would like to write a piece about? 
and could we commission it and perform it? Uh, uh, partly so that there's something that we we have marked this experience together with, uh, but also partly because we want to have something to look forward to, to do, to perform when we are allowed to sing again. I think we had not anticipated that it would be so long before that was going to happen. But in any case, I said, there is a piece I would like to write. And I got away, you know, started doing it during the lockdown and um, finished it luckily in time for them to give a first performance. I conducted them in the first performance in November, just past. So a kind of year from that first conversation to it actually going on in their church, they had to sing it with masks on. Uh, so, you know, even then we're not quite out of the woods there with everybody mm. doing lateral flows every morning. The issues and the themes that it covers, it's not an overtly religious work, even though it's commissioned by a church choir, uh, although it does in a way fit into a tradition of cantatas and oratorios, many of which are or were uh, religious. It tries to deal with um, several aspects of what we've lived through. First of all, the aspect of gratitude and thanksgiving and what that means now. You know, the piece starts uh, on the shore of Massachusetts store in 1620, and it uses that crossing of the Atlantic, that first Thanksgiving, as it were, um, in the in the Western uh, consciousness. But it also treats that crossing of the Atlantic as a metaphor for all forms of deliverance, uh, whether it's Ellis Island or the Irish fleeing famine or, mm. um, you know, people seeking a better life, etc. Uh, but it also looks at the 400,000 people who went against their will, uh, you know, Africans who were taken into slavery and who actually went to a kind of a hell there. And it, it tries to look at all this and what does this mean now? And I suppose the first movement is really about what is unconditional love. It, we think of it as parental, particularly familial, mm. our closest people, that when we are reu reunited with them, when we've been kept away from them, it's incredibly important to us. Um, we've just lived through a period of people weren't able to be at the funerals or the weddings or the baptisms of their uh, family members. It's something t that's become terribly important. But also the image that, that the sort of idea that we do things for our children and our children's children rather than ourselves. And that's an incredibly powerful theme about those crossings of the Atlantic. They were leaving a Europe which was incredibly hostile to them for whatever reason, uh, pogroms yeah. or hate or... Uh, discrimination of all kinds and they went there to seek a new life their lives were incredibly hard they weren't suddenly stepping off a boat and having a life of luxury they were stepping off a boat in order that their children and their children's children should have a better life the kind of compact of the generations i suppose and that's where the piece starts uh just to look at that overall idea of, of gratitude there's a later movement which is the setting of michael rosen's poem these are the hands which is about our gratitude for the health workers, the NHS in particular in his case, uh, but this of course have been the same all over the world, health workers who put themselves in the way of danger to save the rest of us. There's a movement about remembering those we've lost because I feel as if music can be one of the things that helps memorialize uh, the existence of people that we don't want to forget and that the, the love that they had during their lives and that, that they continue to evoke in people even after they've died. And, and of course, all, all this ties into also, in a strange way, into the environmental debate, because, again, what we're being asked to do is something that is not for us, that is not even for our children, but for generations to come, which we will never meet. Um, you've brought us a behind-the-scenes uh, recording from Houston. So here's a little taste from the second movement of Unconditional Love. Unconditional love. 
How would you identify yourself, I know from your politics, strongly as British and European, but listening to that, your music is quite distinctly English to my ears. It, it is impossible to listen to that and not sort of see the sun rising over rolling fields and hear faint echoes of Delius. Um, how do you accommodate these different identities, especially at a time when we see them as competing and exclusive, or at least some people see them as that? Well, I should say, first of all, that I think like most composers, I can't hear what my music sounds like to other people. Huh? And I, I'm not aware of its Englishness, even though others have pointed that out to me like yourself uh, from time to time. I mean, I write a lot of my music from a little retreat that we have in the centre of France. And I feel very close to French music, particularly French choral music. Uh, so I, after when I'm writing, I think, oh, this sounds like X or it sounds like Y. No one else ever hears that. Uh, and I can't <laughs> hear my own style either. I mean, my wife says she could uh, spot a piece by me a mile off. I can't. I don't know what my music sounds like. Uh, so right. that's the first thing I should say. The second thing is that, um, of course, we are the product of all the things that feed into us. Anybody who is would call themselves an English composer, you don't have to scratch very uh, far down into the surface to see all the European influences and in their music. Elgar, perhaps the most famous of all the kind of English nationalist style composers, um, is he would have considered himself a German in style, a, a composer in the German tradition. He loved German music and his music was popular in Germany as well. And he was heartbroken by the First World War because the two countries which he cared most for, Britain and Germany were at war. So I think it's a slightly more complicated picture. And I think even if you listen to the Tudor music of Byrd and Tallis of the period that Vaughan Williams so loved uh, in mm. his music, uh, those composers were actually writing in a style that you might have described as pan-European at that time, because the music they heard or that they perhaps saw on scores and the tradition they were part of was a pan-European uh, style. Now, the further you get away from something, the more it sounds like something else, doesn't it? It's one of the truisms of life, which is that, uh, you know, if your favourite music is a certain kind of grime, um, you're going to see huge differences between different grime artists. But if you have no interest or knowledge of grime music and your interests are elsewhere, you might think that a lot of grime music sounds very similar. You know, each artist sounds very yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, that's one of the reasons I find it hard to disentangle what's going on in my music. And after all, Unconditional Love was written for an American choir initially. And I felt as if I was trying to do something that I think would sound good there. Um, and my music is performed a lot in America. I'm very happy to say lots of choirs sing my music. And, uh, and, I, and so I, I, it's hard for me to disentangle this. Uh, but I do feel, I think all musicians in Britain feel incredibly close to their European neighbours in terms of the tradition of music we've grown up in and got used to. And that it extends to uh, the work that we do. You know, if you want to be an opera singer in Britain, we've got four or five professional opera houses. That's not enough to, for young singers to go into. There are 40 in Germany alone. They're all over Europe. So if you want to be an opera singer, you're going to have to work in Europe. It's our neighbouring place. Uh, and it's where our music, is, you know, is is appreciated and enjoyed and, and our musicians learn their trade. Now, let us travel back in time, insert sound of ascending scales on the harp. I read somewhere that you started composing, which I really loved, because you liked the look of the page of music paper. 
Were you encouraged in this or did your family nudge you towards a proper job? Well, I was eight at the time, so I think jobs weren't really in the offing. But what <laughs> happened was <laughs> I was at a boarding school, a choir school um, in Oxford, where we sang music every day to a high standard. We didn't know it was to a high standard, by the way. You only discovered that later when you went to a normal school with normal people in them and you'd, you, you were slightly surprised that they couldn't sight read any piece of music put in front of them. But that was our <laughs> norm as choristers. You know, we sang music every day and I thought, well, I'd like to try and write something. Maybe the choir will sing something I write. I was basically imitating what I liked that I had to sing. And yeah. uh, at first, when I wrote music down on manuscript paper, I didn't know what it sounded like. I couldn't hear it in my head. I could play bits of it on the piano, but I didn't really know what it sounded like. But I did love the look of the music on the page. And as a side thought to this, you know, music manuscripts are a thing of aesthetic beauty in their own right, never mind mm. the music that they create. And it's a strange thought that really since the early 1990s, there haven't really been music manuscripts in the way there have in the previous five or 600 years of music history, because we now put our things down on computers and we use software and notate it and have printed music magically coming out of our computers. And the old idea of writing music out by hand is kind of dying out. So there isn't that, though we won't have that from our age to look back mm. on and say, gosh, look what, what that composer's doing there with that phrase there. It seems to be incredibly powerfully written down as if they really cared a great deal about it, et cetera, et cetera. Howard, you are England's first ever and current national ambassador for singing. Can you tell us a bit about the crossover between literacy and education and music? I got into this because I was making programs about music education and, and I just thought, well, I've got to, you know, get involved in actually doing something about this because it bothered me and it bothered many people across the sector that community singing, you know, all class singing, all school singing was something that was a norm in schools in the days of assemblies and hymns and all that kind of stuff. And for all sorts of good cultural, understandable reasons, that was sort of, you know, not so much the case because you didn't necessarily want to start a modern school's day singing all things bright and beautiful. Uh, now, I did think well, that actually singing together, collective singing is a wonderful thing and every culture in the world uh, has it and particularly during childhood. And I thought I would try and get involved with the organisations that were already doing fantastic work with young people in singing. And I went to the government and said, couldn't you support us in doing this, rolling out this, the stuff that's being done really well here and there to everybody so that all schools, primary schools in particular, could have this experience. And uh, they, in the days when governments were in favour of this kind of thing, they said, yes, would you sort of head it up in a kind of um, ambassadorial role? Of course, I didn't do the hard work of training 75,000 teachers to lead singing. I didn't do the hard work of getting 97% of all primary schools, turning them into singing schools. Lots of other people did that work and organisations got together to do it. But the money was provided by the government. And I'm really glad that I was involved in it. Uh, and I only stopped being it when a government came along that didn't want to pay that money anymore and wanted to leave it to see if it would just um, carry on on its own on its own account and schools buy in the help rather than get it for free so it did the sing up program the national singing program was incredibly successful during the period when it was paid for by the government and then when it became a kind of private thing it carried on and about a quarter i suppose of those schools carried on with that wonderful help and resources and training but of course many schools particularly during the years of austerity simply didn't have the money to buy in something like this and they'd been told uh, by their new bosses 
that, you know, things like drama and dance and music and art are not as important as the five core subjects. Therefore, it gave schools the excuse of saying, well, in that case, we won't bother with this or that. And it's been 10 years nearly since your BBC Two series, The Story of Music, which set out to explain why, for instance, the word alto, which is used for the lowest female voice, actually means high. Do you think that classical music is any more accessible today? Well, I think the terminology uh, is very confusing. And uh, as you just mentioned that one example, there are lots of them. Uh, but the you know, jargon shouldn't really uh, hold us back from enjoying things and loving music. And you could say that the um, popularity of uh, Classic FM, Scala FM and Radio 3 combined, that's many millions of people listening to classical music. Uh, for much of their day or their week. And I think it's probably also true to say that classical music is something that is enjoyed at different times in your life in the way that, you know, vintage wines perhaps enjoyed more as you get older than when you're very young or that, mm. you know, certain foodstuffs you would love as a child and that you'd have different loves uh, when you were 20 and different foodstuff loves when you were 40. And I think that those, it's just a, you know, it's probably one of these things that we feel as if all children should have the opportunity to engage with music and to have some basic understanding and love of it, uh, because it's such a natural thing for a human being to want to love and to want to enjoy. Uh, and I don't, my feeling is that, you know, music is music and the division of it into different uh, categories, old and new, uh, is to some extent a bit artificial because if you hear a piece of music and you love it and you don't know when it was written, that doesn't matter. It has no effect on whether you enjoy it or love it or not that it was written in 1700 or yesterday. And one of the funny things I find, at least funny, that's happening to popular music is that popular music was always the young and the fresh and the new. Well, popular music is now over a 100 years old. And so you now get divisions of, oh, well, that jazz, terribly old-fashioned. Uh, you get the same old <laughs> rows about categories as classical music has been having to put up with for all this time. So for me, it's not the date it was written, but what it sounds like. Um, Howard, do you think, you wrote recently that the restriction on constant activity and travel, irksome though it undoubtedly was, allowed some people a more considered view of their community in their immediate surroundings. And I, I recognize that. It struck a chord with me. Were you surprised at anything you discovered in your immediate surroundings? Well, I think perhaps like a lot of composers, one of the things that happened was that, you know, my, my music, and I say this in all humility, is performed all over the world. But I can't go and see those places or meet those people or go to mm. all those performances. It's impossible. But what happened during lockdown was I was able to go into Zoom rehearsals, or they, they kind of called them rehearsals, but they were just gatherings, really, to keep musical groups together. And I was able to sort of tune in to them and meet them and spend time with them all over the world in a way that wouldn't have been possible in the hurly-burly of normal life. That's a practical issue to do with being a composer. But of course, like everybody else, I was more aware of the people who live on my street and of what was happening to them and the difficulties they were facing. And all of us, in a sense, were asked to think hard about this. And one of the things that happened, and there's a whole movement in my unconditional love that addresses this, is that the young um, had to suspend their lives completely. All the things we did when we were young, to travel and to do exciting things and explore and go to gigs, everything that you do as a young person was put on hold. And they weren't, especially in the early days of the COVID pandemic, really uh, in as much danger. They did this for us. 
And I don't think there's been anything like enough recognition of what the young have done over the last two and a half, two years or so. The incredible sacrifice they've made of the kind of lives they've had to lead. So there's this whole movement called Regeneration, which basically pays tribute to the young, because also I think we should start listening to them a bit more about the things that they really care about because they really care about the environment because it's their future and they really care about Black Lives Matter and about e equality amongst genders and about sexual orientation. The, all the things they care about, I think we actually need to take as an older generation, they have done us a huge favour and kept us, those of us who are still alive, alive through this. And in a way, the payoff should be, well, now let's listen to them and what, let's see what they would like. Remind our listeners uh, where they can get tickets for the BBC Singers concert that you're directing that includes unconditional love on Sunday the 13th. And if if they're not in London, is it available to listen to anywhere? Yes, it's broadcast live. Uh, so we're performing at four o'clock at the Barbican, the Milton Court Concert Hall at the Barbican on Sunday the 13th. But it is also on Radio 3 uh, live, uh, which makes me a bit nervous because I'm conducting it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so if you go to the BBC Singers, the, the link's there if you want to come and join us in person in that beautiful concert hall or uh, listen to it live on the radio. Wonderful. Every week, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs. They go straight on the Rolling Culture Bunker playlist. The link is in your show notes. Howard, what's yours and why do you love it? Well, I'm, it's Judy Collins uh, brought out an album a couple of years ago called A Love Letter to Stephen Sondheim. This was, of course, while he was still alive. Now, Judy Collins you know, first became a famous singer in the 1960s. And what's amazing is this album she made, this love letter to Stephen Sondheim, sounds like she's a woman in her 30s, not a woman in her 70s. It's a wonderful affirmation of the beauty and the richness of people's voices as they, as they mature. And she does these versions of his songs, um, which are so beautiful and uh, sort of her interpretation is so sincere and interesting and actually rather different from the way you might normally hear a Stephen Sondheim song sung as part of a show on a stage. Mm -hmm. It's much more intimate, her performance. She, of course, was the person who had a hit with it, uh, Sending the Clowns originally back in the 70s. I'd just kind of forgotten she was there in a way. And I, I've, someone sent me the link to this album and I absolutely love it. And my favourite Stephen Sondheim song is called Move On. It's a song actually about being an artist, about, uh, in Sondheim's case, a composer, a lyricist. In the case of the person in the musical it's referring to, it's an artist. But I felt... Very strongly, it spoke to me, and uh, her performance of it is is just gorgeous. Move on, go straight on to the rolling playlist. Now, in its original French, a souvenir first meant a remembrance or memory, and only later came to mean something physical. It's this idea of reality, rather than reality itself, that lies at the centre of Joanna Hogg's indulgent film of intense love, the sequel to The Souvenir Part 1 in 2019. Grieving a toxic relationship with a manipulative older man, Anthony, film student Julie Hart navigates the facts and fictions of this formative first love through the medium of screen. But what did we make of it? Here's the trailer. I think he's contributing to cinema. You're forcing me to have a tantrum. Yeah, he's contributing shit. <laughs> In the real life, this is three days before your character dies. This is quite difficult for you. They're obviously dealing with this unimaginable loss. 
I'm struggling to recognize whether I'm missing Anthony as the person he was, or whether I'm missing that intimacy. <laughs> Critics. What did it make you feel? And I have to find a way to make things work. None of us have any idea what's going on. You have too much faith in me, I always say this. You doubt yourself, man, I won't let you do it. <laughs> I won't let you do it. What, what has changed? I don't want to show life as it plays out. I want to show life as I imagine it. Alex, the souvenir part one picked up the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2019. Where are we left at the end of that film? Were you, like the critics, left itching for the sequel? I wasn't, but that's not because I didn't like uh, the film. I, I liked the souvenir very much, but it's because I didn't know there was going to be a sequel. I thought the film's sort of hanging ending was one of the best things about the film. <laughs> and so I was genuinely um, not expecting it when they announced that they were making it a uh, part two and that, in fact, she had run out of money, basically, and that's mm. that's why the two weren't filmed together. Sophie, there's plenty of overlap between both films, especially the suffocating space of Julie's student flat, which is the site of her all-consuming romance. Mm. But as Alex said, they were actually shot separately. Do you think there's an obvious disconnect between the two? No, I don't. I think they run together pretty smoothly, actually. And I think that kind of sense of it being a bit kind of suffocating and airless remains. And I think the shift is pronounced enough for it to feel like they are two distinct things. Like, for instance, in the second one, we have a lot more outdoor floral shots. You know, it's spring and so you get this blossom and you get the the kind of feel like you I appreciated the cinematography a little bit more in the second one in that 16 mil film that sort of luminous glowing mm. quality I do feel that they run together well I think what I struggle with a bit certainly with the the first one was because I saw it a bit late it was you know at that point all the rave reviews were in and I find <laughs> it quite difficult to you know, to assess any piece of art when it's been so thoroughly raved about, whether it's a, a record or a, or a film. I, and I know that I'm not the only person to have kind of complex feelings about it, really. And, you know, I think Martin Scorsese, who executive produced it, I think when he watched Joanna Hogg's first film in, in 2010, Archipelago, apparently he switched it off after 15 minutes, you know, <laughs> but then returned to it. And I think that's, Certainly a thing that's interesting about these films is they they have that kind of niggly um, quality of fascination, I guess, where you kind of do want to go back to it. But, uh, you know, did I enjoy it? No, not always. You know, and sometimes a study in anxiety and all of these sorts of things is interesting in and of itself. But, you know, I, I don't... Uh, do I feel kind of satisfied by it, edified by it? I'm not <laughs> sure. Do, do you, it's, it's, Alex? I don't know by your laugh. It's, it's, you it's interesting, Sophie, that, that mm. I, I, you see, I think the two views are not incompatible. Right, you can yeah. think something is, you can think something is a, 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 an exquisite work of art and not 
enjoy it or yeah, you, can right. see, you can you can know a film is a masterpiece and at the same time recognize that maybe it's not for you mm, i guess mm, mm. i there was a heap of stuff that i really enjoyed about it i think the performances are incredible i think the cinematography which you mentioned by uh, david redeker is luminous is a very good word for it actually but at the same time i find the people in it sort of designer drab and that bothers me because mm. i don't recognize that looking around my life i don't know people who are always miserable who are yeah. always depressed who are always anxious even the most depressed anxious miserable person has moments of levity they yeah. have moments of humor and so when confronted with things which are unremittingly um heavy and serious and there is something just constantly serious about the, the central character mm. um I I kind of shy away from it a little bit. Did you manage to watch it uh Howard? Yes, I did. I unlike you two, I never saw the souvenir part 1. So I mm. came at souvenir part 2. I uh, never saw the part 1 either. Uh, uh, so uh, souvenir 2 came up to me um as if I'd never, you know, with no foreknowledge uh, of the style that I was expecting or indeed the storyline and how it would be carried on. I mean, what was interesting to me was that whilst of course the the style of the uh, the direction had a kind of european japanese feel where there were long periods where nothing was said or there were sort of moody shots that went on for quite a long time in fact the stuff i enjoyed most about it were the scenes uh, because i thought the naturalness and the interplay of the uh, characters for example the main character and her parents it, it was actually wonderful and the scene where the all oh, the student film students were all arguing about uh you know getting the thing done and how no one was making the right decisions and they were all just falling out with each other while they were making this work all felt you know cracked cracked along there were the the when there was dialogue and when there was interplay between the characters i enjoyed it at its most uh, and when um the main character was in her world of uh often in her world of sadness and loneliness I was in a way I suppose being a, a composer I was thinking what would the music be for this moment and mm. uh, it's really one of those films where you, uh, there's hardly any music at all because the silence is part of the point of it. So it was, it was an unusual experience for me but like you both said actually it stayed with me and a lot of the images from it have stayed with me in a kind of slightly haunting way. I'm glad you point out the images. The souvenir actually shares its title with a 1778 painting in the Wallace collection, which is the site of Anthony's death in the first film. And I just think that every single scene, especially in the family home at the film's open, it almost looks like a melancholy oil painting like Whistler's mother, the colors that are used. But let's come on and talk a bit about the the cast then. So Julie Hart is played by Anna Swintonburn, daughter of the legendary Tilda. And she's a very convincing, unconvincing wannabe director, as you said, unable to articulate her vision and always changing her mind, much to the frustration of her fellow film students. Now it seems that every other word on the Raynham Film School set is a like. What did you make of the art school set, Sophie? I mean, here's the thing with that kind of supposedly naturalistic dialogue and I'm not a super duper film nerd but like of the sort of naturalist I I guess I I love movies by someone like Eric Romer and and I was thinking about his film The Green Ray which is so kind of natural and 
there's awkwardness and a lot of improvised dialogue. But I felt like I got very swept up in it and involved and I really cared about the characters whereas with the dialogue in this sometimes I felt like it fell a bit flat for me actually and again that sort of goes back I think to Alex's point it feels a bit sort of joyless and like there's not much of a a kind of spark there. I loved that there was a bit more of Richard Iwadi in this film because you get, you know, tons of, of spark and and heart there. But I think with, I've got mixed feelings about Honest Winton Burns' performance, actually, because there were, there's like, well, there's a, for a start, there's like a tenderness, I think, between Joanna Hogg, the director, and, um, and, and Honest Winton Burns because she's her godmother in real life and I think you can feel some of that affection coming through mm-hmm. and she's very watchable I was thinking she has a kind of Lady Diana vibe you know this sort of distracted porcelain kind of ethereal presence mm-hmm. but also she is just so young and I'm not sure that I found enough of a sort of substance in there to really get my teeth into Like Howard, I went into part two blind without having seen part one. And I found that much of the film actually followed two quite ambiguous and quite distinct storylines. There seemed to be one about the young woman trying to come to terms with the death of quite an intense love and the other about a very privileged art school student. And they don't really coalesce until much further on down the line. And I think some of the more you know, even cathartic moments just make for uncomfortable viewing. I won't even mention the awkward and ambiguously non-consensual sex scene kind of made me squirm in my seat. Mm. Um, But yeah, for me, I just found that it was quite detached and reproduced quite a lot of quite negative narratives, really, around victimhood and gender. Certain points just made me feel like it's the kind of film that makes you hate yourself every time you weren't certain in your own ideas and beliefs. Totally. As usual with Hogg, she offered her cast no conventional shooting script, instead just a collection of vivid descriptions, documents and suggestions really for the dialogue. And even things like the soundtrack, it's really the the soundtrack of her student life in the 80s, lashed with the Jesus and the Mary chain. There's heaps of Nico for Sean, if she's listening. Did you all get the impression that the protagonist, Julie, was really just the director, Joanna? Oh, certainly. Absolutely, I did. And, you know, and, oh, it's it's difficult to not spoil <laughs> the end of the film. But yeah, you know, you, in, in the, the way that Julie casts someone to play her in her uh, student <laughs> film, you know, it's people watching people playing people. I think I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, actually. Talking of the 80s, can I just say that Tilda Swinton got her equity card, her first job, in the 1980s, uh, in a musical by me, The Hired oh. Man, at the Nuffield Theatre, Southampton, and she was the pub landlady. And I think it's uh, probably uh, the uh, only job she's ever done where she was forced to sing. Uh, so, that's <laughs> so fantastic. That she was doing that in 1984. What a fabulous bit of trivia. And now it's time for Sophie to choose her favourite current track. Sophie, what's on your playlist Mm. at the moment? 
this is a big change of tempo really from from the souvenir it's a young lady called pearl charles um she is the daughter of larry charles who was one of the main writers on seinfeld it's a big dose of 70s california soul pop called giving it up i feel like it could so easily have been a pastiche and and dull and heartless but it's really done with love and it's quite blissful it's very warm you know you can imagine yourself driving through the desert with a beautiful warm breeze in a gorgeous sophisticated <laughs> frock <laughs> um, and i think this i think this is going to be um quite a big thing this year this kind of mood and i i loved what howard was saying about how much the kids and the young people have have sacrificed and i really feel like now we're coming out of the end of it into something oh god hope um you know a bit more celebratory and joyful and sparkly eyed so that's why i've chosen this song i hope you like it mm, sounds wonderful we will drop giving it up by pearl charles on our rolling playlist the link is in the show notes It turns out Theresa May isn't the only one with a penchant for wheat fields. 16 self-portraits of our man in the field, Vincent van Gogh, are now on show in London, some of them staged together for the first time ever. So did the Cypress impress? I ventured out to the Courtauld at Somerset House earlier this week to find out. My name's Ernst Weglin and I'm the head of the Courtauld Gallery. Now, we know Van Gogh for his green eyes and his red hair. His face is instantly recognisable. But there's a great diversity of portraits in this exhibition. Can you tell me a bit about the range on display, why the exhibition is so important? So Van Gogh did self-portraits for about three and a half years, and he did a really significant number of self-portraits during that period. And what is striking, as you've said, is actually the range of different sort of treatments of his own face. And that is not only because his appearance obviously changed a little bit over those years, but he was painting self-portraits for different purposes. Some of them are clearly sort of more informal. They're about stylistic sort of experimentation. He's using himself as a free and sort of readily available model. And in other cases, he's painting larger pictures which are much more ambitious and intended as significant sort of sort of public statements about himself as an artist. And that's what's really wonderful to see in the show is that range of works produced over a short time span but showing his extraordinary sort of development. And this exhibition really promises to go beyond the stereotype of Van Gogh as the psychologically tortured artist and that brings up many surprising works. So can you tell me a bit about why the chair, for instance, features in this exhibition? Yeah, well, when you're looking at a self-portrait, you are looking into the eyes of the artist and so it is very, very tempting, almost sort of irresistible to project onto him or to search sort of in his face for all of those signs of the biography that we know so well, particularly those sort of tortured and traumatic sort of months towards the end of his life. And, and clearly some of that is there. There are two pictures that are painted in the 
asylum at Saint-Rémy, which are very much about him recovering from the crisis in his life. And also the Courtauld's own self-portrait with bandaged ear is about that. But it's really not just about that. It's meant to offer a sort of more measured sort of way of thinking about the self-portraits. Hoch was actually a really deliberate artist. He had a plan, you know, he had ambition. He wasn't just wildly sort of throwing onto the canvas all of the turmoil of his inner life. He was carefully plotting his stylistic development, absorbing what he saw around him and, and growing as a painter. You asked about the chair in particular. So there are two pictures in the show that aren't self-portraits. All of the others are. Most famously amongst those is the chair painted towards the end of his life when he was in the south of France in Arles. That is a one of a pair of paintings, the other one being another chair, which is called Gauguin's chair. And this one is Van Gogh's chair. And he painted those two pictures as part of the decoration of the Yellow House, where he lived briefly with his fellow artist Paul Gauguin. And so even in his own lifetime, that was recognised as a sort of displaced self-portrait of sorts. And so there is something about sort of the rough authenticity of that chair. It's a sort of unadorned sort of simple qualities which people associated, I guess, with the image that they had of Van Gogh and that he maybe was also cultivating to a degree. The two chairs are amongst my favourite works of Van Gogh's because you see them act, you see the furniture act as a proxy for their personalities. Could you tell me a bit perhaps how Gauguin's chair differs in those qualities, how the different chairs represent their different artistic personalities? Yes, well, Gauguin's chair is more elaborate and perhaps also, dare one say, more sort of comfortable in a sense. And so Van Gogh you know, loved Gauguin, revered Gauguin. They were fundamentally incompatible personalities, sadly. And, and also had incompatible views on art. But I think that there is that sort of idealistic moment of those two chairs unoccupied sort of side by side. One imagines them in the yellow house and the two artists sort of sitting together, dreaming about art, dreaming about recreating sort of the future of art. And that, that sadly never happened to that degree. I'm Karen Serre. I'm the curator of paintings at the Courtauld Gallery. This is a portrait of one of Van Gogh's friends who was also a northerner in the south of France. He is a Belgian artist called Eugène Bock. And Van Gogh described him as having a, a face like a razor blade. And indeed, you can see that his features are incredibly sharp. His, the bridge of his nose is very thin and his face is, is very, very long. We wanted to include this in this self-portrait exhibition to kind of open up this idea of self representation in, in Van Gogh because when he posed or when he asked Bach to pose for him he said that he didn't want to make a portrait of Bach per se he wanted to make a, a portrait of an ideal artist and so that's why for the very first time he adds this background this imaginary background of this intense blue and then these dots that represent the stars and so it's really the starry kind of the starry night starting and it's he says that this represents the artist's imagination and his creativity Bach was also a kind of a dark blonde ginger northerner in the south of France and Van Gogh had a lot of affinity with him so it's interesting that he he used Bach rather than his own features but it may be that 
he must have found that too difficult maybe to, to use himself, but he used Bach to create this portrait of, of an ideal artist. I think you're so right in that we see a lot of Van Gogh's other works represented in here. The blue and the yellow look very much like his yellow house, and that contrast, as you've mentioned, is something that's prominent across all of his works. Yes, exactly. And that's what we, we did want to do as well, is to, even though the exhibition is really focused, obviously, on the self-portraits, those very much find their place in the rest of his work. He did portraits, landscapes, and, and still lives. But actually, he said many times that he found portraiture the highest form and the highest ambition of, of art. And that's really what he, he strove to, to do. And his self-portraits were, in many ways, exercises to become a portrait painter and to really be able to depict people. And he says, actually, it's not even only people. It's He wants to go deep in their soul. And that was part of the reason he did so many self-portraits as well, to kind of train in, in doing that. Now, we're standing in front of a self-portrait from 1887. And can you tell me a bit about this picture and the influences that we see in it? This is uh, one of my favorite works in the in the exhibition. It was lent to us by the Art Institute of Chicago, and it's really the picture where you see Van Gogh looking at what was the trend of the of the day in 1887, which was a movement called pointillism, and this was pioneered by an artist called Georges Seurat. And what Seurat advocated was actually not blending colors on the palette or mixing them, but actually just applying dots of pure color side by side to really create a vibrancy and for them to mix in the viewer's eyes. And Van Gogh was really intrigued by that. Most of all, he was intrigued by color. And what Seurat also advocated was using colors on opposite side of the color wheel. And so here we have the background, which is this wonderful array of blue and green, but then highlighted with orange. And then if you look at his jacket, his jacket is all about the red and the green, so opposite sides again. And then, of course, he has the perfect feature so for, for this type of exercise in color because his green eyes are kind of a contrast with his very bright red and orange beard. And so this is something that even after he moved away from this interest in, in pointillism, he always kept this love of color and especially of these color contrasts. And I love this portrait because it just looks like it's been licked with flames, like little embers falling over it. It's just so bright and vivid. Yes, it's incredible. It's actually in very good condition. Some of the portraits, or indeed the paintings by Van Gogh, have suffered with a little bit of pigment change because at the time there was so much novelty in, in, in paint. But this one has just you know, kept all of its brightness. And uh, it's, it's incredible because you look at his beard or you look at the hair and you think, oh yes, that's just going to be orange or yellow. But there's so many different colors in there. And as you say, it's a bit like when you look at fire. There's blue and there's green and, and bright red in there. And it's really wonderful. Now, we're talking about artistic influences. And it's important to mention that of all of the 35 portraits produced in Van Gogh's final years, actually over half of them were made in 1887. That's when his friend and fellow artist, Emile Bernard, said that he started making these amazing fiery faces. What changed in 1887? How do we see Van Gogh start to see himself as an artist differently? Well, he comes to Paris in 1886. We don't know of any self-portraits before that date. 
and when he comes to Paris, he is still painting in this sort of slightly dark, realistic mode that reflects his style of working in the Netherlands. And then he starts to look around him in Paris and he sees the work of fellow avant-garde artists like Claude Monet and, and also Georges Seurat, the neo-impressionist artist, and he absorbs that. And that is sort of crystallized through this really remarkable group of self-portraits that he does the following year in, in 1887, where he's experimenting really sort of freely with different ways of painting. And the range is really very striking, from the fiery faces that you described, which are uh, extraordinary, to much more looser sort of searching self-portraits as well. Van Gogh once said that painted portraits have a life all of their own, and they go somewhere deep in the soul of the painter where the machine can't go. Why was the modern portrait so important to Van Gogh and why are these portraits important for us today? Yeah, I think that's a a really important question. Van Gogh wanted to be a great portrait painter and he clearly used self-portraits to help him along that path. They were a way of sort of developing his skill and ambition as a portrait painter. And that statement is really contrasting the ability of a painted portrait to capture something, as he saw it, which was deeper and more authentic than a photograph. He was thinking about photography. Well, people may or may not agree with that, but that was Fahok's view. And it was about a painted portrait not having to cleave closely to the way that a person necessarily looked, and you can see that in his own self-portrait, but that would search after something deeper. And the idea that a single individual could generate for him multiple different portraits, in a sense, capturing different aspects, not necessarily their appearance, but of their sort of, of their heart and sort of spirit. And I think his commitment to portraiture was, really speaks to the man, in a sense, that it wasn't the highest genre of painting at the time, but it was for him the most meaningful. An artist who was rooted in everyday life and experience, for whom a personal, individual experience was so important, you know, and the great empathy that comes across through those extraordinary letters that he writes, that... That is obviously the other self-portrait that he produces, this great body of letters sent principally to his brother Theo, which are, in a sense, the parallel to the painted self-portrait. But for me, that is really why he believes in portraiture, is because he believes in sort of humanity and the individual. Following from what you've said there, I think it's fascinating that you said that Van Gogh played with portraiture as a medium, I suppose, to try and get at the essence of things and different likenesses of himself, especially with respect to what he said about machines there. What do you think Van Gogh would have to say now when we talk about the age of selfies, about social media and about how today, really, we're playing with our likenesses and the way we portray ourselves online in different ways? Oh, that's a really difficult question, I think. I do find it striking that uh, that other people said that actually the most lifelike representational portrait of Fahok was not done by Fahok himself, but was done by this other artist called Russell, which is much more sort of naturalistic and traditional. But I think that sort of 
search for the essence, really. That is what you know, he was about, that's what his art is. There is, I, I suppose, a way of thinking about sort of modern media in the same way. It feels much more ephemeral. Perhaps it achieves something comparable through its many, many sort of layers and repetitions. I think less so, in, in a sense, in the depth of the single sort of representation which is what stays with you when you see a, a Van Gogh portrait. And I'm fascinated by that idea that the most accurate portrait of Van Gogh is actually the one that someone else does yeah. of him and sees him. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Van Gogh's self-portraits is on at the Courtauld Gallery at Somerset House until the 8th of May. Pompeii is Kate LeBon's sixth studio album. LeBon plays every instrument except drums and saxophones and recorded the album largely by herself in isolation with long-term collaborator Samur Kujain Cardiff. It is a follow-up to 2019's critically acclaimed Reward. Here's a taste of it with the track Running Away. Bond's Pompeii is an artist's reaction to the disorienting experience of pandemic introspection in many ways. Sophie, did you find it, as a result, disorienting and introspective? So, I wouldn't say hugely disorientating because in a lot of ways I think it's a, it's a fairly straightforward pop album. You know, there's a sense in which you can have pop and something experimental. So, you know, people like Paul McCartney... John Cale are uh, uh, so good at this kind of thing. And mm. in terms of that sort of pop quality, there's a lot of use of the DX7 synth, you know, which which everyone knows and is familiar with from the big sort of 80s hits, like, you know, Take My Breath Away by Berlin or actually mm. The Cure's Head on the Door album. It's everywhere. There's a the particular sound of the bells. But anyway, so it's sort of infused with that sound. They use the DX7 on it a lot. And also that sort of Japanese city pop. I also heard kind of shades of, in her voice, Susie Sue and Talk Talk, maybe Eno's Warm Jets. So it's not like, whoa, what's this crazy thing? Talk Talk, yes, there's definitely Talk Talk in there, isn't You know there? what I mean? I, right? I heard a little bit of Kate Bush. I yeah. heard a little bit of Bowie, even mm-hmm. even a bit of Fleetwood Mac in parts. And the first track is is almost like a sort of atonal Schoenberg thing. It, yes. it, it, it start, so it, it goes from place to place. But was the mix successful for you, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yes, I, I think it is. I think here's the thing. It's sort of quite, quite difficult, I think, with a with a lockdown record now that we're nearly two years on 
to want to listen to that and to feel, you know, she in, there's a song called Moderation, which is fantastic. And the video has her flying a black kite in it, which I think is a pretty perfect kind of poetic image for those sort of feelings that we were going through. And the lyrics, is, she says, I can't put my finger on it. I want to cry. That was, I think, for a lot of us, the, the sort of experience of mm. lockdown. But now, is that what I particularly want to be listening to? You know, I'm not so sure that I want to, to sort of re-immerse myself into that world. But as a record, I think it's hugely successful. I, I think this the fact that she's called it Pompeii, I was thinking, well, what does that mean? That there's this sense of life being interrupted, you know, mid-life. You're right in the middle of, of living your life and then the ash descends and you're caught in that way. And I think that that was very much like the arrival of the pandemic. I think it's fascinating and deep and quite satisfying um but i'm not sure how much i want to return to it mm, right mm. now what did you know what i mean yeah uh, completely i think like all good titles the title pompeii applies an incredible gloss on what you're hearing it it sort of enhances the experience you're totally right about the the notion, the sense of sort of lives interrupted under a cloud of molten ash how would Running Away, which we just heard, includes the lyrics, I'm not cold by nature, but this could bring me to my knees. The fountain that empties the world too beautiful to hold. Where do you stand on misery without explicit catharsis? The ancient Greeks were pretty anti on this. Is an artist's only duty to their personal truth, or do they have an implicit responsibility to not leave their audience wanting to mainline donuts under a duvet and never come out again? <laughs> um, gosh, that's an incredibly a deep question, Alex. I'm feeling a little bit like I'm doing an A-level class and I'm, I don't know <laughs> quite what the answer is. Um, first of all, it took me back. I mean, I wasn't particularly familiar with Kate LeBond's work until you suggested I listen to it, so I'm grateful for you having introduced me to her work. It took me back because I was actually making recordings uh, in the early 80s with these sounds, and it's, it had a very nostalgic feel to me, and particularly mm. at the studio, I did a lot of recordings in, in the early 80s and produced records in, which was a tiny basement studio in Islington uh, called Red Shop. And there was me and the engineer were, and the guy who ran it were basically the only people who could fit in there. And all those sounds and that very present bass sound that she has and the uh, sound of her guitar is very reminiscent of that period. Of course, she's far too young to, to have uh, been an adult during that time. But uh, it did take me back. On the subject of, of misery, I, I think one of the things about art surely is that you put out there what it is you're feeling and you want to express and it's always for other people to decide whether you've succeeded in doing that or whether you have provided catharsis or not. Because I know from my own work is that I think a certain number of things about what I write. And then I'm always quite surprised by what people come back with when they're responding to it. Mm. And it's possible that she, writing this album, feels that there is a great deal of uh, catharsis to her you know, portrayals that are darker in it. But that you're not, your, your wavelength picked up something different. I think it's one of the wonderful things about art. I have written a lot of musicals, uh, but the reason why not everybody knows what all those are is because I generally write the sort of non teeth and smiles version of musicals. You know, people think of the musical as a form as being rather like some pop music, kind of just light entertainment to take you away from the misery of your life. And I never really think about it like that. I think about the work that I do as being something that might include all sorts of aspects of one's life, including sadness, but that there are different ways of, of, of 
that providing solace or uh, reflection. And I, I'm not, I'm not, don't feel qualified really when I listen to Kate Le Bon's, uh, this album, Pompeii, and because there's quite a lot going on. I don't really feel quite qualified to know exactly what it is she wants us to take away from it because it feels quite a private endeavor. A lot of it to me felt a bit like a rehearsal. And I'm a, a great fan of rehearsals, by the way. Uh, I always prefer the rehearsals bit of putting on shows to the bit when you have mm-hmm. the audience in the room. Uh, I don't know if I'm uh, alone in that, but I certainly much prefer the rehearsal vibe and what it does creatively. Um, and so I'm, I don't mean it as a criticism. I just mean that there's a sort of sense you're in the room with her and the gear um, and that's it. And I think that that's uh, quite an intimate experience for the listener. Uh, but it doesn't, will always, of course, provoke different uh, responses in people because it's so intimate. Mm. Yelena, did younger people who tend to long for a faster pace really suffer much more during this Pompeii-like interruption? Do you think this has been properly understood by people my age who are maybe in a relationship where, you know, who are in slightly more comfortable surroundings and who are in charge? I'm glad to once again take the representative mantle of young person um, up on this. But yes, and and something we've all spoken about already, but the pandemic has very disproportionately been felt by younger people. Um, It's something I've reported on quite a lot in concrete terms, in terms of the effects on students in particular. But I think something we don't always talk about is how we've been deprived of many formative experiences. I myself graduated into the pandemic year, so I didn't go to my graduation. Mm. But moreover, this general socialisation. I think what's really interesting, though, in the discussion that we've had is that actually younger people and older people have tended to find comfort in many similar things. So me, myself, I've equally been quite nostalgic for sort of 80s synth pop things. Even very recently, I went to see this week Nation of Language at XOYO, who are a big 80s new wave style band, really. And they shot the stage with red and uh, blue lighting, interspersed with, you know, bright white lights. The whole thing just looked like a VCR performance. And even the lead singers prancing around stage like a mix between Morrissey and Ian Curtis. So I think even though, yes, we've experienced this pandemic in very different ways, find it quite interesting that perhaps in our music we've been able to find some common solace. Yes, maybe so maybe, interesting, yeah. maybe you I, have I the, the energy to bounce back much more elastically than other people and maybe actually the, the effect, you will recover from the effects quicker. Uh, you guess. say that, Alex. <laughs> I mean, I've spent that many evenings indoors now that I feel like I've forgotten how to dance. <laughs> Never. I thought Yelena's response was so interesting. You know, um, for eight months of last year, we couldn't see our own daughter inside or hug her. She's a teacher in a large comprehensive school in London, through which COVID, of course, raged. She found it incredibly difficult on a number of levels. And I think many of her colleagues found the period of it so um, really depressing in a way, because it wasn't just about what they were going through. It's also what the, the children for whom they care a great deal their students were going through. And I think that I just pick up from what Yelena said. I think that's the, the retro-ness of quite a lot of new music. Um, it's amazing to me as a synth head. Mm. I was a synth programmer and session player in the 1980s, played on loads of records and had all those pieces of gear. To see them coming back in and having a new vogue is both, um, you know, sort of weird because I feel annoyed I sold them all. Uh, they'd now be worth an <laughs> absolute fortune, but also sort of rather reassuring that there's some, that the fun of them have come back, have been reintroduced to a younger generation. 
There's certainly a common solace and nostalgia, I think, however that manifests itself. As regular listeners know, we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time. We've no clearance for these, so they'll be going straight onto the playlist. Howard, what have you chosen and in a line, why? Look, this is impossible. Absolutely impossible. I don't really have a favourite track of all time. I've got about a thousand favourite tracks of all time. But if you make me choose one, I'm going to choose Eleanor Rigby because uh, of the way it sounds, the, the radicalness of its choice of instrumentation, the beauty of the melody, the, the recognition of a much earlier form of music kind of goes back to modal folk music pre Western classical music style of uh, scale that it's sung to. It's uh, emotionally uh, powerful and great images. Um, and although it sounds now like something we've heard a million times, because we probably have, the shock of what this must have sounded like uh, when it was first released, which I can just about remember because I was a young boy, uh, is still amazing that someone would think, oh yeah, you know rock and roll, you know rock music, you know pop music, you know skiffle, you know all this. Uh, rock Billy, you know all that. Here's this. <laughs> and Sophie, what's yours and why do you love it? I mean, again, it's it's an impossible question. And it's also, I was thinking, okay, favourite rather than best. So if it's favourite, then I have to be really honest and not just choose something really cool and clever. I'm going to go for a song by the 90s so-called shoegaze band Ride, which is Vapor Trail. I was listening to some old shoegaze stuff the other day and I was just immediately brought back to how it felt to be in my teens in the 90s listening to this really ecstatic music and how dreamy and free I felt you know and I felt 14 years old again I remember sitting to that sitting under a desk at school at break time listening to that on my Walkman but I would also say as a quick comment to Howard I realized about that time that was also when we were doing scenes in our drama class from A Midsummer Night's Dream and I had to learn Bottom's part in the Rude Mechanicals play and the only way I could learn it was by singing it to the theme of Blackadder and that will forever be emblazoned in my brain. So thank you, Howard, for that. Well, I'm most honoured, Sophie. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will be our Columba-like one last thing as the bouncers circle? Yelena. Mine's a very brief cautionary tale as things slowly reopen. I booked my first holiday abroad since the start of the pandemic. I'm off to Berlin in March and was locked out of my online banking shortly afterwards. I had to spend 30 minutes on the phone with quote-unquote Luke from the North, that's how he referred to himself, um, only to find that the fraudulent transaction in question was not actually me trying to book my holiday, but one of the gig tickets that I've booked recently in an attempt to re-socialise myself and learn how to dance, which then uh, resulted in me having to explain to him what a wet leg was. <laughs> so um, just a warning for listeners that prepare for some pretty lengthy telephone calls and start to reopen again. Howard, how about you? Uh, my final thought is that the BBC, uh, in all its wondrousness, belongs to all of us. It belongs to the people of Great Britain. It doesn't belong to a Secretary of State. It doesn't belong to a government. It doesn't belong to a political party. It belongs to all of us. And it is an amazing part of why, for the last 70 years, Britain has been uh, very good 
at things like music. And it has orchestras and choirs and bands that no other broadcaster could possibly think of affording or having. It has probably commissioned more pieces of new music and more new artists and given them an exposure than any other organization in Western civilization. I don't have the exact figures, but I'm guessing that's true. It is an incredible force for good, even though there are things about it that are not perfect. Of course, we know that. Uh, but I think that the idea that a new cultural front in the cultural wars is going to be what the Tory party does to the BBC. I think we all have to sit up and realize it doesn't belong to them. It's not their choice. It's ours. Here, bloody here. Sophie, how about you? Oh, I'd march for that. I will sing in choirs <laughs> for that march for that. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, my closing little bit of chatter would probably make me sound like a like an idiot, but it's about autobiographies. I'd always steered a bit clear of them. I, I love reading novels, and I thought, well, why do I want to read about someone else's life? And then I, over Christmas, read the Bob Mortimer autobiography, the Georgia Pritchett wonderful sort of memoir, and I'm now reading Brian Cox's. And I realised, and this is probably not news to anyone uh, apart from me, the purpose is you get to hang out with that person. And of course, I want to hang out with you know, and have a mm. cup of tea with Bob Mortimer, Georgia Pritchett, Georgia Pritchett or, or Brian Cox. And I've just been really, really enjoying them. And I'd, I'd kind of realised that I'm about at least 20% happier in general when I'm reading a book and I'm involved in it. And so that's that's sort of what I'm plugging the gaps between novels with is people who I want to hang out with. And I really recommend it. Lovely. And Alex, what about yours? Um, so I continue my descent into Korean Netflix madness. Um, <laughs> and my latest addiction is a show called All of Us Are Dead, which is a Korean um, coming-of-age zombie flick. So think <laughs> Mean Girls meets Train to Busan. It has basically wow. all the high school politics of students who bully each other, can't stand each other, are in love with each other, but they all want someone else, and puts it into a zombie apocalypse. And the, the camera work and the tracking shots, if you have seen Train to Busan, you will recognize it, because it's just breathtaking. The choreography, the number of extras as a camera runs with a protagonist as they're being attacked by every which direction by sort of livid things it's quite a thrill ride and i recommend it heartily well it's already popped up on my netflix to watch so i'll definitely accelerate it up the list <laughs> and with that that's the end of the podcast thanks so much to howard goodall and sophie harris for joining us on the culture bunker thank you bye-bye thank you my pleasure and don't forget, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. And one day, the artist might even get paid. From myself and Alex and my fellow producer, Alex Reese. thank you for listening and we will see you all next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Alex Andreu with Yelna Sofronievich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.